I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? And what did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigations. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, that's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 17, we close the first season by discussing what we've learned. So we're going to have a different sort of episode this time because we didn't have an actual reading. Instead, it seemed appropriate for us to kind of review the books that we've read and see what we can find common threads throughout them. And I think we've, we have found quite a few, but before we get started, Kyle and I wanted to thank all of you who listen. This is a fun exercise for us. It's a fun activity and we're grateful to you for listening. Hopefully that it, it's uh, interesting or entertaining to some extent. And we want to ask, you know, for your feedback because we could really use your thoughts in terms of making the our little show better, making it more engaging or interesting. If you have any suggestions on how to improve or things that you like what we do or don't like what we do, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you can reach us on, on Twitter or through Facebook. We'd love to hear your thoughts. On the same note, it'd be great to the extent that, that you like the show that maybe you could leave a review on iTunes or give us a give us a good rating. You know, I think neither Kyle nor I really want to turn this into like a, a begathon where every week we <laughs> ask you to review us and do things on iTunes. But, you know, I think it helps. At least that's what the internet gurus tell us. So, yeah, that's what they say. And also, if there's a book that we haven't gotten to that you think is important to conservatism, that's something that you read along the way, let us know mm-hmm. um, because we're still putting together our season two lineup and you know we have some ideas but there's certainly room for things we haven't come across yet and we'd like to learn about them as much as anybody else yes and here we are about what 14 15 books and this is our 17th episode we've i think we've covered quite a bit of ground but we want to go even further with this next season and cover cover a lot more books and you know in our opening we say if you want to join the discussion you know join us on twitter or facebook it would be great to gin up some some conversation. So if you guys have reactions to something we've said on the podcast, something sparks another thought in your mind or something that you want to push back on and say, hey, no, that's not right, we'd, we'd love to hear from you and love to start that conversation. So Absolutely. Yeah. Please do. I mean, yeah, if you think, even if you, if you think we're totally wrong about something, we'd be glad to hear it because, you know, maybe we are. Yeah, because, I mean, we're using the books – as our springboard, but you know, a lot of the stuff, our conversation is just generated by stuff that we think we we've learned over the years and could definitely be wrong or maybe on the wrong tracks. We'd love to hear, have some good discussion on that. Also, you know, we figured it might be interesting to any of you listeners that how we got into this in the first place. For my part, I think I've been conservative and Republican my entire life. And I've, I've worked in politics and policy as a career, worked on the Hill and still work in DC and just felt really uncomfortable 
with the direction that that quote unquote conservatism was moving. And I had discussions with some friends saying like, hey, this isn't what's going on on Pennsylvania Avenue. That's not conservative. It bothers me that the media is constantly referring to anything that Trump does, regardless of whether it would normally have been considered conservative or not. Anything he does is considered far right or ultra conservative. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I'm like, "Mm, trade tariffs. (laughs) I've never considered that conservative at all, let alone, you know, ultra conservative, but it really sparked for me like, well, maybe what we need to do is an exploration. And I kind of started doing this on my own, but then if, then it just seemed like it would make sense. Others would be interested too. How about you, Kyle? What? I mean, I had similar thoughts. I, I mean, there's, there's shifts going on in both parties that kind of make you wonder where, where's it going to end up? How is, how is conservatism changing? And when you, when you look at the leftist ideologies, they have usually a better idea of what they are. You know, a communist knows what he is. A socialist knows what he is pretty much. They've got Marx, Lenin, and other left-wing thinkers. We are, as you've seen this season, I mean, our, our, our source material is so sort of scattered across the centuries. And even then, it's not, it's not inventing a thing. It's really just describing conservatism as something that already existed when that author was writing. And maybe he's saying mm-hmm. these are the good parts, but these are the bad this is what we should emphasize. And so, yeah, like, like you, Corey, I wanted to, I wanted to read all this stuff. I wanted to read all this stuff for years, but I think getting together in a podcast on a schedule, it's like, it's like taking a college course. It was like, well, now I have to read it yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> now on when we recorded on Sunday morning and I've got to, I've got to be ready You know, I've got to have my notes because I know you will. So feel like it's lit a fire under both of us and kept us on a on the schedule to read some of these things either for the first time or read them i mean I, you know it's like i remember reading Locke in college but i didn't really take much in from it you know and uh maybe because i read it real fast and you know was 19 years old and not really thinking that deeply right and then there were other ones like burke which you hear people reference burke constantly in the conservative movement and i never read any of it so now now we've read it. Now, it, it, for me, it sheds a lot of light on things, and and writing is what I mostly do for a living. So mm-hmm. when I'm writing about political issues, I mean, having an understanding of where these themes come from and where these ideas come from is very useful. And I, I, I think you're right. I think other. I mean, if it's if we found it that interesting, there has to be somebody else out there who feels the same way. And all you listeners who have been been downloading it, I mean, it, it's a uh, it, it's it's a blast to see that people are really digging what we're coming up with. Mm-hmm. For sure, and hopefully, you know, as we follow this college course regiment, I mean, ho- hopefully, it's a, a public good that we're reading these books that maybe a lot of people always wanted to read or n- never quite got to. And I think you know, Burke is the perfect example that you use there because. I had read excerpts, but mostly you're talking about just quotes that mm-hmm. that get kind of recycled. But this is almost like a book club where we read the book for you and hopefully give you like something more than a book report, but <laughs> an, an extra conversation. And then, you know, we do it so that you don't have to and, I don't know, can generate thought. 
and hopefully, I mean, it's not like we think we're going to change the world or necessarily change anybody's minds, but it's a worthwhile exercise for me to kind of crank through this and give it some real thought on the left. It just feels like there's, there's tons of people who are constantly doing this. And, and on our side, I think that we're just too busy. Like, I don't know, going to work and yeah, <laughs> more likely to have a larger family maybe, and more focused on just, I don't know, providing and working in business and stuff like that, as opposed to spending our lives just kind of navel gazing. Cause I mean, you and I have day jobs and mm-hmm. we do this kind of as a, uh, side hustle, <laughs> not for money. Cause I'm sure no. we'll make any. <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. But, but yeah, it's, um, it's true. We don't have the academic establishment the way the left does where there are tons of thinkers on their side. It can do this for a living and teach about it and indoctrinate the youth about it. And Mm -hmm. uh, we're just kind of out here doing our thing and hoping to, you know, draw a few people in and share a few ideas. Yeah. It's not just a stereotype. I mean, I think that it's, it's, this is real sociological uh, phenomenon that, you know, conservatives work in business, work in the military, you know, Mm -hmm. work in administration and, and a, a lot of, like this smartest liberals are they're going to go into academia and they're going to go into uh media careers like journalism and so forth so anyway so um our goals i think are to sort of read these books get them out there and start a discussion and kind of where we want to take it is have a season two that's a whole lot like season one where we're gonna hit a bunch of new authors hopefully and some new books and think through them and read through them and discuss and, you know, over the long haul, hopefully it doesn't become redundant. I mean, that's a little bit of my worry, but as, as it, as we sort of cover a space thoroughly, then maybe we start branching out and finding other, other books that, that relate, but maybe haven't necessarily been viewed as conservative or take some books and read them and give our conservative perspective on it. All right. Well, so for today, we, again, we wanted to review some of the books and the reading that we've done to try to see if we can find any common threads. And I'm going to start with one that I've found in almost every book we've read, and that is Federalism or Decentralized Power. And we read that with Goldwater. We read it with Will. We read it with Burke. We read it with Crystal and Tocqueville and Buckley and Friedman. This is a real serious common thread, the idea that we should pull power from the centralized location from Washington, D.C., and bring it down to lower levels to empower people at the local level, empower people at the state level, municipal level. When we do that, when we bring the the power closer to the people, the people are closer to the problems and, and more interested in actually solving problems. I mean, I think we all know that states and cities whether you're Democrat or Republican, there's just a real element of pragmatism that exists. It does not exist at the federal level, at the Washington, D.C. level, because folks are not there to fight, have a big food fight. Instead, they're there to solve problems, get past, you know, whatever, whatever issues and make the community better. And then Burke also has his conception of the little platoons that, you know, Nisbet talks about so much. It's basically like, and Weaver too. So really all of our authors. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, it's it, it is. And it's interesting to see that in we see that in American politics today. It's also it that's what they're getting at in Europe too. A lot of the the right wing populism is about taking power back from the EU, to, you know, even from their own central governments to their local areas. And you see it in like Catholic social thought. They call it subsidiarity, but it's the same thing as federalism. Basically, it just means that power should be devolved to the lowest feasible level. You know, if something can be pushed down to municipalities or counties, then it should be. Mm. And that you see, it's not just even in right wing populism, but you see it in right wing intellectuals and right wing, you know, elites, right wing. Everybody on the right seems to think this is a good idea, and I, I think it just points to an inherent faith in the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's—I don't know. I mean, there are times when I'm not sure Burke always thought the people were always right. I mean, he was writing about in the time of the French Revolution when some people were making some interesting decisions across the English Channel that he definitely didn't agree with. But he, it's still it's still evidence as a faith in those platoons and those local areas to say, this makes sense for us. Let's get together and solve this. Like you said, it's practical when you get down to a city level. That's why I think, I mean, you see some, some cities counties in america don't even have political parties when they run for election it's all nonpartisan at the mm -hmm, local level mm -hmm. and that makes sense because you know what difference does it make what you're you know feeling on supreme court justices and the war in iraq you're you're getting elected to you know the problem in your city might be bad roads or it might be trying to get businesses not to leave you know it's it's things that are kind of outside that the the bigger you know, international type issues. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, federalism or decentralization has, is, if that's not part of your conservatism, it, it's hard to put it in the big conservative, even the, the biggest tent conservatism seems to include that. And we're contrasting this with the folks, liberals who don't like, why wouldn't they like decentralized power? Why wouldn't they like federalism? And I think the main reason, well, it's number one, they despise the idea of differences between between uh, cities, between states, and it's easier to win at the federal level. It just is. It's it's uh, so much easier to win once at the federal level, you know, to have an executive order from the president than it ever will be to go city by city, state by state, and try to push your agenda. If if what you want is this broad social engineering than making a change in a city at a town in a town with 8,000 people. Well, that's not worth your time. Instead, you know, let's just mm -hmm. win at the federal level and we can force it down on that 8,000 person town as well as like the rest of the country. I think the difference also comes down to some of the things that Hayek was talking about. And that if you want to impose a universal rule, it first requires that you have a universal morality. Mm -hmm. And I think we know that that's kind of hubristic, right? Yeah. We, we come up with moralities for ourselves and, and try and try and live good lives. But I think part of conservatism is knowing you might be wrong. And even if you're right, there actually might be different answers for different people in different situations, at least on, on some questions. I think the left has more of a tendency to say, this is the answer. Uh, you know, whatever our current theory is, you know, whether it be intersectionality or redistribution or whatever, that's the answer. 
And if you're against it, you're probably racist. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to impose it anyway. Yep. Because we've got the power, we've got the money. And then just the growth of the growth of power and money in Washington just makes it all the easier for them to, to do that once they get their hands on the levers of federal power. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of two different issues, but they, they I think they they have to be tied together. And, uh, and the conservatism is part of us admitting we don't have one morality that we're willing to completely impose. Yeah, that's a great insight. So another one that I found, and you can tell me a few that you found, I think freedom slash liberty, freedom and liberty was a real common thread. I mean, that mm. was that was Goldwater's focus. That was Milton Friedman's focus. John Locke, I mean, his his preoccupation was making sure that freedom and liberty were preserved as as humans come out of the state of nature. Hayek, that was his focus, is making making sure that uh, we preserve. Of the freedom of the individual Buckley, obviously from a movement conservative standpoint and even Burke. So I, fa- I found just about all of our authors focusing on freedom and liberty as a really as a conservative tenant of the mm. highest order. Yeah, definitely. That's even, I mean, even those who didn't emphasize it as much. And I think we're going to find Buchanan as the biggest standout from a lot of these themes of the books we read this season and i don't i think he emphasized it as much as the others but it was still definitely there and it was something that if you asked him should we be increasing you know liberty in america he'd say yes i thought it was interesting to get into why because i think before this i somebody said should we have more liberty and i'd say well yeah of course you know people are born to be free but why and a lot of these uh, authors make the point that if we if people do want to live the correct lives and live live virtuously the best way for them to find that virtue is through individual liberty it's mm-hmm. through being able to look at your own life look at your own spiritual tenets and uh, just your own family and look at what's the best way to live what's the, what what should i be doing what's wrong what's right and if the government's dictating all of your moves you can never have that conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. Even if you, even if you do, you can't do much about it because you might say, "Well, you know, this is wrong." But boy, if I don't do it, where am I going to end up? In jail? Lose my job? Who knows? So, liberty as a path to virtue, I thought was was interesting because it it can definitely lead the other way too. I mean, we see people do things with their freedoms that are harmful to themselves, harmful to their families and communities. So it's, it's when you see somebody do something like that, you think, wow, do we really need this? You know, I mean, you hear that. I mean, you hear it with Second Amendment stuff all the time. Whenever, you know, you hear Democratic senators saying, how many guns do you need? Well, it's like, well, that's not, that's not the question you ask when there's a liberty is, issue at stake. It's not mm-hmm. how much free speech do you need? It's, we have it. And we, it's more like, how can we get people to use it the right way? I think, uh, especially for our more individualist authors this season, it's been a, a freedom has been their highest ideal because it does let people figure out that virtue question for themselves. And I've been fascinated by how 
how often you know freedom and liberty is tied up in individualism. I mean, most of our authors, as you said, who are focused on individualism, I mean, what they're really they're really trying to achieve is freedom and liberty, and they see individualism as the sort of the path to get there. And we're contrasting that with what we might call a negative conservative value, which is sort of like pushing back against egalitarianism and or, and collectivism. Instead, we're saying like what we want is more freedom. What we want is more liberty for people to make their own choices and not have values imposed upon them by the government. So what we need to do is pull it down to the individual level. Let, let people decide on their own. Individuals decide on their own destiny and their own value structure that will provide the most freedom to the most amount of people. And the closer we get to collectivism, the, the more we move in the direction of socialism or other forms of collectivism, well, we're moving away from, and, and as we move away from individualism, we're moving away from freedom and liberty and choice and personal, personal choice. And I did, I hadn't really thought of that in the, in those terms before. And I think that was really insightful for me, kind of revealing of why the focus on individualism, because I think they're, they're really shooting for a broader goal. I mean, we know Friedman is, but you can contrast that with some of the tensions that were that we've also read, which was, you know, we have authors, George Will or, you know, Buchanan who have other societal goals like, well, George Will says the government should be involved in kind of imposing a little bit of a morality and uh, creating more social virtue. It almost requires that we're going to have to move away from from individualism. But then again, as we move in that direction, we're moving away from freedom and liberty. Like now we're saying, okay, the government gets to decide and not the person. You could see in Will's book, he struggled with this about how far is too far. When, when do you start to make that switch? And I'm not sure exactly what he was looking at in the early eighties that made him think, Ooh, we need to, we need to rein this in a little. I mean, there was, it was at the tail end of a maybe 20 year crime wave that was just probably not even starting to break yet. So I could see a lot of people writing in those times saying, boy, we've got all this freedom, but look what's going on. I mean, murders are up, drug crimes, all this stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, and that's one, one shortfall of some of the really individualist authors is that they, they mention the virtue angle, but they don't, they don't dwell on it. It's mm -hmm. all, I mean, for Friedman, I think it was almost it felt like it was outside his purview. You know, it's like people yeah. will find it on their own at the right. end, you know, it's just sort of like in the same way as an economist, he would think about, well, what's the, the proper price on something? It's like, well, look, if you set up a free system, people will find the proper price, you know, through supply and demand. That's it. It's no, so I don't think he spent a lot of time trying to define what that would be. Mm -hmm. um, clearly you've got, you've got guys like Buchanan saying, all right, well, we've, we've taken this free market thing pretty far and it's done some good, but look, it's also a lot of people are feeling squeezed by it. Is it maybe the case that there are other things that are more important than efficiencies and, and even more important than pure Liberty in the market sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a rising force we're seeing in conservatism today. And it's, it's one that I mean, I have some sympathy for, I have to admit, and I think you and I probably are farther apart on that than, than most issues, but it's, it's hard to square it too with the love of Liberty. That's sort of been the defining, it's been the organizing principle for the United States for its whole history. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we can almost couple this though with s- several authors. Most of our authors have talked at length about a need for either religious belief. You know, Tocqueville's talking about that. Burke's talking about that. Bork, or at least a some sort of transcendent values. You know, Weaver talks about that. And Nisbet and Will. It's almost like we want individualism so that people can decide for themselves. But what we want them to decide for themselves is value system that's religious based or that's transcendent that gives mm-hmm. that gives meaning outside of the imminent you know outside of politics outside of you know our day-to-day lives but have have some meaning that's greater and bigger some limitations on our on our behavior that's imposed sort of from our from our beliefs whatever they may be whether they're religious beliefs or believing in some sort of natural right or transcendent values and I think that's pretty interesting because uh, that's pretty core to conservatism and even movement conservatism is religion and religious beliefs or or at least a uh, metaphysical uh, higher beliefs well at the same time though we're, we we want to give as much power to the individual so there's that there's that tug and pull that you're mentioning between well we don't want to go too far individualistic sort of libertarian individualism because then we're just we become an atomized society where we're just bouncing against each other. But we need we need some cohesion and some agreed upon values. And I think in our in America right now, this is one of the major problems we're running into because with religion waning, with the power of the internet to help people self-select and to create niche uh, uh, echo chambers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's we're we're moving away from a World War II period where everyone had sort of shared values and had just had baseline fundamental shared understandings of the world and, and of our cohesion as a, as a country, kind of that American exceptionalism and a patriotism and sort of a a common religious belief, whether, you know, not sectoral, but at least, you know, kind of belief in a higher being. And as we're, as we pull away from that, it becomes, you know, harder and harder to have a cohesive, happy you know society and so it's kind of like we we like people doing whatever they whatever they choose to do on the individual side on the libertarian side that's part of conservatism but another part of conservatism is hey we want everybody to you know think that murder is bad or whatever and and, yeah and we see changing values and for better or worse i mean changing views on on you know gay marriage or you know, the birth control or, you know, any, any one of a a myriad of kind of social issues. But I I see the kind of attention there and and a number of our books have kind of had to work through that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one thing different about the right than the left here, or even the conservative right from other left and right ideas is whether in communism or in fascism, there is no higher authority. You know, those are both atheistic ideologies that mm-hmm. that tell us that man is the master of everything and whoever's in charge of the country or the world is the one who says what goes. And, you know, they have ideas, but also all those ideas can be changed because they're just men's ideas. They're not God's ideas or they're not even natural truths. You know, they're just Marx's best guess on how things go and then Lenin changed that up and, you know, the Soviets went along with it and that's where their country formed around and Mao did his thing and, you know, each of them tweaked it because they could, because they're not, they're not bound. 
the way a Christian is bound to the Bible or a Muslim is born bound to the Quran. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, in uh, those systems, we're all just kind of floating around out there and there's no universal sort of transcendent truth. I don't think it's a coincidence that those are the ideologies that start world wars and, and have death camps and labor camps and, and gulags and whatnot. It, because it's when you have no, and we've talked about this throughout the season, I think when you have no traditional inalterable power that you're bound to respect, you can do whatever you want. And that usually ends up punishing your enemies in a way that even you wouldn't have said was a good idea a few years ago. But once you're in power, then, you know, mm-hmm. well, we've got to make it work. They're wrecking this system. We've got to, you know, for the greater good, bring everyone along. And it justifies the means politics that I think is or should be alien to conservatism because we too, whether it be tradition or natural rights or religion, we have this external force that makes us restrain ourselves, even as we say that there should be fewer government restraints. It is, it maybe it comes back to the same kind of trust in the people that mm-hmm. makes us want federalism and, and local control is to say, look, you know, a decent people who's educated in these things will, will know when to stop. And we set up safeguards and separation of powers to make sure it's true, but it's still, it, it's, you know, even all those separations of powers still depend on a self-limiting people. Yeah. So another one that I found is respect for preserving tradition. You know, this is Burke's central thesis is maintaining tradition and passing it along and for him it's aristocracy but but you have movement conservatives like Buckley who value tradition and Nisbet and Weaver who from a sociological perspective is sort of like yeah we need tradition we need we need shared experiences in order for for society to function well and Bork obviously is is interested in tradition particularly from a cultural standpoint we what we found, I think, from our readings is again sort of that tension between preserving tradition while at the same time allowing for kind of a, an evolution. Because slavery and Jim Crow, those are bad. Those are bad things. So we don't want to preserve that tradition. We, so we obviously some changes need to need, need to ma- be made. We need an evolution, which we, which we in America largely have done. While at the same time, like preserving what's good and what's valuable and kind of who gets to decide that's, that's tough. And how, how, how is, how do we ultimately kind of pick and choose and say, well, this tradition is a good one. and That one's not so good. This is kind of a tension of conservatism, but I think what separates conservatism from, from the liberal side, and that is just a respect and a value of tradition in the first place, because I don't think, I don't see on the left any, any real regard for for tradition at all in fact you know there's there's more of a an appetite for scrapping everything from the past and calling that just oppressive white patriarchy and tossing it in the bin and saying let's start from from square zero where i think without question conservatives are like no 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 okay there's some Maybe there's a, a few uh, bad apples in the in the barrel of tradition, but the overwhelming majority is good. And tradition is created because it works, and because humans have been 
working at this stuff for thousands of years. And there is a conventional wisdom that's passed along from generation to generation to generation. And most of that is good and it's there for a reason and we shouldn't just toss it. Yeah. I think it was Burke who called tradition, the collective wisdom of the past generations. Um, somebody this season said that I think it was Burke and that, that really stood out to me because it, I, I saw this tension. I say, well, yeah, we do things this way, but you know, the liberals say, why should the dead rule us? You know, why should we be bound by their ideas? And, and Burke gives the perfect answer to that. So, you know, every generation that came before followed this. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe we should at least start with that. Mm-hmm. And then if is if there is something wrong, if we do become more enlightened about a certain area, like like slavery, for instance, you know, we can we can talk about it and we can say, yeah, all right, you know, I know this was done since biblical times, but let's look at the things we've learned about the rights of man and the you know, about about freedom, all the things we talked about with liberty, and maybe let's say this these two conflict with each other. What should we do? So there, it's, it's in a way, it's sort of like the common law, which we discussed uh, last week. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it requires restraint in that, you know, you shouldn't overturn every tradition just because you can, but you know, it, it, at its, at its heart, common law is, is a respect for legal tradition. It's harder to describe it because you, know, you say, well, you should follow tradition. Except occasionally you shouldn't, and 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 putting you know defining that occasionally is difficult. It requires judgment. It requires wisdom, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that's hard to write down in a book. It's much easier to take the more extreme views of always tradition or tradition is worthless, and mm-hmm. finding our position in between, even if it's more on one end than the other, it's it's a challenge in conservatism. I think to 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 make a, a balance of that, that's, uh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So another one I found is capitalism, free market and property. I think those are kind of tied together. Not always exactly, but access, this goes back to individualism, but the access for the individual to step out and choose will create more capital, more value to, to the society from a financial standpoint than any, anything else. And so there's a, a deep skepticism of socialist communistic style projects where you have central planning instead, the individualism, property, free market, you know, federalism, decentralized power. I think these all kind of work together because what we want is to bring power down, take it away. Cause it's so as power becomes more centralized, it becomes easier and easier to oppress and mm-hmm. to create totalitarian regimes and move away from from freedom and liberty for Milton Friedman freedom is integrally tied to the free market to capitalism because it's a whole aspect of life that is f- open for free choice um, by the individual instead of dominated by the federal government where we're told what to do and what to buy and what our choices might be. So I think that free market and free market and having property that that you can own for yourself, Weaver calls this the last metaphysical right because holding property is a way to govern your own domain in a way that, that again feeds into the federalism and, and provides more freedom and liberty. Yeah. On your own land, you can say no. And that's, only free people can say no. 
you know, that's, I think that's, I, I don't know if I really appreciated before these readings, how much private property ties into the preservation of these other rights. I knew it was important, but I think reading some of these thinkers, especially, I mean, Weaver was definitely a proponent of that, but then even when we get to the lock talking about why, why do we have society? You know, why did we emerge from the state of nature? Part of it's protecting private property because people make improvements to things. What good is it if you live in anarchy? The, you know, a barbarian can come over the wall and just smash everything up and there's no civilization to protect you. So, I mean, property is really at the root of why we even organize governments, even though it is itself a way to resist government. And that's, that's an interesting tension. I don't think you could be a conservative and believe in collectivization. So, you know, as we're trying to discover what it means to be conservative, I think that's mm -hmm. got to be part of it. None of the authors we've read are really do none of them approach collectivization. You know, some of them want to govern capitalism in slightly different ways. Some don't want to really govern it much at all, but having that, 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 uh, that freedom of owning your own, property of having it be guaranteed to you and not something that can be taken away you know, very easily is uh, it's essential um, yeah because it, without property it sort of leads straight to despotism because the idea of collectivism is is an ideal but it's really a delusion this this conception that you know by all sharing together we're going to actually share in the wealth but in fact We've had serious empirical evidence to show us that's exactly what does not happen. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. sh sharing the wealth means you're always going to have people who are more equal, who actually enjoy the wealth, while the vast majority of the population will live in misery and with a stark lack of wealth, where private property, it's a bulwark against that. It's a bulwark against collectivism and despotism. Or you can at least reign in in your own domain, in your own yard, you know, as small as my property is. And of course, it's still more than half owned by the bank. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but at least it's recognized as my space for my family, and this is where we can be. And it can't be taken away. It can't be pulled away. And you can't have the government say, "Oh, well, to to make things more equal, this is now going to be shared by." X, Y, and Z, you know, number of people, but really now it's going to be governed by some, you know, prefect who's part of the Politburo. And these, these are things we seem to have to relearn every generation too. There's always somebody who refuses to learn from the past. And we've, as this season's gone on, we've been watching what's going on in Venezuela. And here's, here's a country that was prosperous. It was a middle income country and a lot of natural resources. And they elected the socialist. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, the thing about Chavez is that they, they picked him they and they knew what he was because he had tried to come into power by coup earlier and failed, but they elected him anyway. And, and now they're, they're in dire poverty. They're on the brink of civil war. It's, it's a mess. And yet I know that within our lifetime, we'll see another country go the same path where and there, maybe it's, there is something that when you see a lot of wealth in one person's hands and not in another's, there are people who are going to say, well, that's not right. You know, we've got to, got to take that off and mm -hmm. give it, give it to everybody else. But 
but we see time and again what happens with that. And it's like you said, it, it never gets to everybody else. It's always, it's it gets to the government, and then, you know, a few pennies trickle down. But most of the wealth stays in the government hands, and then new wealth is never created. You know, it's right. Exactly. They they'll seize property, but nobody's going to make that property productive when he doesn't own it, when he can't benefit by the fruit of his own labor. We seem to have to learn these things again and again, and it's it's uh, an important job of conservatism to remind uh, the world that that doesn't work. It's not right, and it also doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a, one of those stand-the-thwart history things that I think Buckley would have appreciated. See. Saying, you know, even as you get the rise of democratic socialism here in the United States, we have we have to, even if it will be unpopular, say, no, this this is not the way. Mm-hmm. And and on a related note, when it comes to, I guess what we could call uh, negative conservative values, we see repeatedly just a, in all of the books that we read, almost a deep skepticism of social experiments against uh, social theory, against egalitarianism, against socialism and collectivism. I mean, just about every author is saying that's exactly where we don't want to go. And so that's why we need to value these other, (laughs) these, Mm. these, uh, these other values. This is why we, this is why we need to pursue them because we have seen empirically what happens when you move in that direction, the French revolution, you know, the Maoist China, Stalinist Russia, we, and even, uh, even uh, Nazi Germany is, okay, it's fascist, so it's far right, but we're still talking about another form, just another form of collectivism, just another, you know, social experiment. So what we need more than anything is to move away from those. And it's just really striking how many of our authors, you know, maybe this is a function of the books we chose, but but it really stood out to me how many of our authors, basically every single one, who are just deeply skeptical of these forms of idealism and utopianism. Yeah, and that's I think that ties back in with uh, something we read in Hayek, the idea that if you are going to do a social experiment in your own household, it's okay. Because if you fail, there are still other households. You know, Even if you harm yourself pretty badly, you're not dragging down your whole city with you. But when you do these experiments at the at the national level, well, if you're not right, and they're usually not right, it drags down the whole country. Mm-hmm. You know, it drags down a, a, an entire people through no fault of their own, get pulled into something new and damaging. And well, it just, it, it just reinforces the idea of local control and, and individualism and autonomy because, you know, we're all free to try new ideas. You know, I mean, people, people change religions, people adopt new philosophies. I know, I I don't think there's anybody listening who hasn't had some change of heart about some political or theological or philosophical idea since, Mm -hmm. since he was a teenager and starting to think about things for the first time. We all change our minds, but when, when the government changes its mind on a very important thing and makes us all go along, then yeah, like you were saying, these social experiments, they, uh, it's anathema to conservatism. Mm-hmm. So there's one more that I wanted to mention, and then we'll see if you have any others. But uh, in a few of our books, Buchanan, Buckley, Goldwater, Tocqueville in particular, there's a, an implication of patriotism and kind of a perspective of American exceptionalism. And 
I really think this is part of conservatism and has been part of contemporary conservatism at least. And I think Buckley kind of takes it right. And that is, you know, it's, it's important for us to kind of root for each other and view each other as a team. Like here we, here we are America team America. And there's something special. There's something different about, about America. And Tocqueville found it. He saw it. That's, you know, he wrote 700 pages on it. I think there's, mm-hmm. there's just something different about the culture. He calls it customs, but there's just something different about the culture of America that just makes it different. This kind of feeling of American exceptionalism and patriotism, I see strongly on the right, which is, you know, why so many conservatives go into the military, for example. And, and on the left, they just view that as quaint and passe and actually dangerous you know, pa- patriotism is antithetical to the open borders ideal. You know, let's make everything equal and everyone equal. And if you if you have pride in your country, then that's a just one step towards greater bigotry and and uh, genocide. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of like those of us who you know are conservative like you know what i i, I do feel a little pr- i feel a little pride in my family and my kids and you know i feel a little pride in my neighborhood and for our sports team and and you know and and for america like hey guess what i am team america and and i don't feel ashamed to say so yeah i'm with you they 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 on the left have a hard time separating liberal nationalism i mean liberal in the old fashioned sense from you know conquest nationalism mm-hmm. you know and it's it's you can love this country think it's the best country in the world and still not want to take over mexico you know and in fact many americans would really not want to take over mexico even if they're very nationalistic because it doesn't have to mean what it meant in europe in the 20th century or early 20th century where nationalism got twisted into this world conquest thing by the germans and others american nationalism is often if anything, it's often isolationist. Yeah, true. If we've got a good thing here, and uh, we want to be left alone. Yeah, make America. We great. don't want anybody messing it up. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, it shows people keep coming here, um, legally and even illegally. People want to be Americans, so I think we've got something right. We that that shows it's not just they're not coming here to get welfare because really, as immigrants don't get access to a lot of those programs, they come here to work. They come here to raise families and they come here to become Americans. And I, I think that really shows the triumph of this country as an idea and that it resonates around the world. Even when other governments are bashing us, their people want to get here or at least they want to experience our culture, mm-hmm. you know, and our, our movies and our sports that find their way around the world mm-hmm. with barely any promotion on our part. They just, people want it. And, um, it's maybe it's our, I mean, Tocqueville was some of the things he wrote America, about America were so insightful. I mean, for somebody who's not an American, maybe it took, maybe it took a foreigner to understand what was so great about this place because he, he wasn't from here and he could see the things that were remarkable for what they were not, you know, in the way that somebody who grew up among them would say, well, yeah, that's how countries go. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. he, him coming over from Europe and say, well, you know, most people don't do it this way and uh, maybe they should. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the big question and Tocqueville got into it with American exceptionalism is, does that mean that these principles can't apply elsewhere? And I think he kind of came down uh, with a no 
on that question, but that it seems it's not as easy to make them apply elsewhere mm -hmm. because we do have a certain background in, you know, these Anglo-American legal and traditional values that led to the country we have today. But, um, but on the other hand, I mean, freedom and liberty have, and democracy have spread around the world. So, yeah. I mean, since his day, it's been, that's been, and since, even since our young days, we've seen it spread to half the world that was under the thumb of socialism. Mm -hmm. And now it's that, that footprint is shrinking and, and the footprint of liberty is growing. So I, I mean, I think what we, this country is exceptional, but other countries are also going to imitate a lot of what we learned and work it into their own national DNA. Mm -hmm. All right. Is there any others that, uh, that you wanted to hit? No, I think we, I think that's all of it. And I think we're, we've got a few principles here that I think we've begun to note our core conservative principles, but I think there's, there's still a lot more to read and there's still a lot of room within conservatism to disagree with other principles. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think we've done some good work this season in sort of saying, what is a conservative? Hope to continue that journey in a few weeks. Yeah. Let's refine it. Yeah. So for next time, we plan to take maybe a, a few weeks off to recharge and prepare for our season two. So listeners don't give up on us. We will return soon and we'll have even more cool books. And in the meantime, please, uh, again, share your feedback with us. Give us a, a good review on iTunes. Join the conversation. If we get more engaged, it'll be more fun for us and for, and for you too, I, I think. So anyway, thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you soon.